You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hi, everybody. You are listening or watching Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and joining me today for a special edition of the hashtag FemSquire series is immigration attorney Jessica Smith-Bobadilla. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you, Christina. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. You have quite an interesting story with yourself and your family, and also you have some pretty impressive credentials. But we will get to that. I'd like to start every interview out with the same question. Where did you go to college and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I went to UC Berkeley um, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I knew from about the time I was in fifth grade that I thought I wanted to be an attorney. I didn't really know at that time what area. And then as I started to study more different subjects outside of the law, I realized that I thought I wanted to focus on the area of immigration, human rights, and international law. So that's kind of where my interests led me. But I felt an instinct in about the fifth grade that I should try to become an attorney. That is quite an instinct at such a young age. Where do you think that came from? I think that I really enjoyed in school when we got a little bit farther into our studies, you know, above the lower grades in elementary school, they started having us do more oral presentation in front of the class. And I felt that I really was able to do that, not effortlessly, but with some preparation, it just felt natural to me. And my, my uh, teachers had told me that. And I think also I was just kind of a very, um, a nerd, you know, so I liked studying and I knew that becoming an attorney would be somewhat rigorous, but I enjoyed reading, I enjoyed writing, and I thought it would be kind of a good overall mix of my uh, strengths and interests. I definitely knew that I was not meant to do anything related to math. <laughs> well, that's sort of the joke, right? Is that we didn't go to med school because we were bad at math. So we went to law school. It could be partially true. In my yeah, case. <laughs> I think it is in some cases. Did you come from a family of attorneys? Neither of my parents were attorneys. My uh, mom has passed away. My dad is still living, but they were both teachers in the public school system in California, in central California throughout my life. And my mom was an English as a second language teacher. And then she later became a professor at the junior college. My dad um, was kind of from a family of musicians and taught music when I was younger, but then he became a special education teacher and finished his career teaching special education classes. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't want to be a teacher. Well, I think that that was part of my rebellion. And um, I, I think my parents kind of, would have liked us to become teachers and my brother did become a teacher and he's still a teacher. I did become a professor a little later in my career. I was asked to teach law school and I had the opportunity to teach for about five years and run a nonprofit clinic in Central California. So if that was your rebellion, your parents got off really easy. 
<laughs> I, I think so in some ways, but um, I'm pretty strong-willed. And the other thing that I put my foot down about was music classes, because since my family, my dad's family, even living in different countries, they're all just very musical, a number of very talented musicians. I just knew I didn't have that gene or that inclination or whatever you want to call it. So I argued my way out of piano and flute in about the fifth grade. So I think that was what was hard is that when I decided something, I wasn't a difficult child necessarily, but when I decided something, it was hard to convince me otherwise, even as a child. I'm one of those people, and I think this is kind of reflected in my style as an attorney. I won't argue about everything, but if I see something that I think is a big issue for my client or, you know, in my life, I think I'll take that to the, to the end. In most cases, I have to be strongly convinced to, to let things go sometimes that are um, important to me because I think that's, uh, that's one of the things. I'll let little things go, um, but uh, if I really feel that there's a strong principle or something big, then I, I really try to um, honor those things, both for my clients and for myself. Even at the young age that you were in fifth grade, you decided you wanted to be a lawyer and you were interested in human rights. That does seem like a really big thing for a fifth grader to even be thinking about. Why do you think that that was on your radar at such a young age? Well, I think, you know, and the other thing to kind of add to what you just said, I was growing up in Central California, in Fresno, California, not in New York City, not in Washington, D.C. So it's not like I was in a circle where my parents were diplomats or in those kind of professions or human rights lawyers. Just in reading a lot of material, I started to become very interested in the world. I was very interested in other languages. And um, I also was very interested in just kind of justice and people's rights, both in reading about the civil rights movement in this country, free speech movement. Um, my parents were kind of part of some of those circles in California, you know, of people asserting their rights here in the United States. I think also my, my dad's family, my father's parents, uh, they survived the Armenian genocide and they ended up in California. My grandmother's family first in Mexico and we had this really interesting family history uh, that was also obviously very linked to human rights. You know, the situation of Armenians still struggling to get full recognition of what happened to them in uh, the Ottoman, at the end of the Ottoman Empire. And that always really weighed heavily on my mind. So I think I was someone that was interested in pursuing justice for other people, but I also had to watch as older relatives, you know, who uh, survived that died and there was never really full acknowledgement. You know, recently the U.S. Congress acknowledged it, but um, it was never been fully acknowledged by Turkey, the country where uh, my grandparents were born and fled from. We talked about that personally in private, and I thought that was such an interesting part of your history and part of who you are. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. My ex-husband is from the Dominican Republic, and um, he, his last name is Bobadilla. Um, my grandfather's last name was Quiumshan when he came to the United States, I believe initially through New York, um, through Ellis Island. And through, um, because of the situation there and due to other factors, I think he actually had someone else's documents and ended up with another name that was Armenian, but was not his name. And later in his life, or not that much later, maybe, 
he felt like he didn't want that name, but was also nervous, I think, to change his name to our true family name. Um, a lot of people believed that he could be removed or deported if he did that, because on some level, there was a level of misrepresentation or fraud in his entry, from what I understand. And I think that's also made me, as I've encountered, um, you know, I don't want to represent that most immigrants, no matter where they're from or uh, what their uh, situation was, commit fraud or misrepresentation to enter. I think it's a very small percentage. But when I have encountered that, particularly when people have had a level of desperation or fear of persecution or torture in their home country, it always makes me think of my grandfather. And even just looking at my name, you know, because yeah. he ended up Americanizing his name, partly because he was afraid that it would all unravel and he'd be deported. And my grandmother's family was lucky because they had quite a bit of connection to American and I think mostly American missionaries in Turkey at the time that were able to to help them get out of the country. But, you know, there were still people killed within my grandmother's family. But my grandfather, I think, lost pretty much his entire family. So he was also very traumatized, you know, by that. And I think also, even though he had passed right before I was born, just hearing those stories and uh, being with my grandmother till I pretty much graduated from high school, uh, I really learned how, you know, these types of gross violations of human rights really lead people to these extreme levels of trauma where their whole lives are altered. Their name, our name is altered, be partly because yeah. of trauma and because of what happened to them. Um, my grandmother's family, they had two Armenian last names. So my grandmother's father's last name was Vartanian, but he was killed. He was a Protestant minister in Turkey and was killed on a certain day when the Ottoman authorities rounded up a lot of Armenians that were prominent and killed them publicly as kind of a sign to the rest of the population, you know, to kind of um, control, I believe. And that, that was kind of started a wave of events that led to the elimination of a large percentage of the Armenian population. But they ended up, they, they had some half relatives that were already in the United States. So my relatives that are in Mexico actually have the last name uh, Avakian because we, um, there was kind of a merger of those, those step siblings again, partly for immigration purposes, so that people, uh, at least people believed that it would be easier to petition for each other if you had the same last name. And I still hear that, hear that repeated by clients from all over the world to this day. And sometimes that's not actually true, but I see these things in my family history that I still hear clients say and people making decisions about their life and their names based on these perceptions about the law. My father, you know, my father's still alive, but he didn't talk about these things a lot. And uh, my mother, who um, was actually from a um, Italian-Irish background and grew up in the Bay Area, she was really interested in my dad's family story. Her grandparents were also immigrants from Sicily. She met my dad because they moved down to the Central Valley to farm after they retired. Um, in the Bay Area, and um, she was very captivated by the story of my dad's family and also very, um, you know, dedicated to kind of the cause for justice for the Armenian people, but also for all oppressed people. That was something I think I really got from my mom. I hope that you have a lot of those stories that you're preserving for future generations. 
I, I'm trying. And um, one of my aunts um, is actually my dad's sister is now 92. So as she started to get a little farther along in age, we sat down a lot and she has a lot of the pictures preserved. I have a lot of cousins around my age, both male and female in Mexico, or they grew up between Mexico and Southern California. And I had the benefit of connecting with them. And there was actually a conference in Northern Mexico in Tijuana about my partly about my dad's family and our family history. My great uncle who, you know, settled there as a refugee, married someone from central Mexico. And it was kind of a rags to riches story for both of them. They started out, he was a shoeshine boy. She was a maid, he was an immigrant. And um, they ended up building a kind of an empire. Um, he owned a hotel, which is still very well known. Um, it's called the Hotel Caesar in Tijuana. And a lot of people don't know this, but the Caesar salad was invented in the restaurant. If you ever go, you have to have the authentic Caesar salad in the restaurant. I would like to go now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a cool place. There's a definite mixture of cultures in my family and in my influence. The history of Armenians in the world is that they were almost eliminated as a people or as a race in recent history. There's never been a full acknowledgement. There's never been really a full reckoning of that history. I definitely, though, think it was a huge influence, both on my grandmother, um, my uncles, many of them lived in Mexico their entire lives, even though they had permission to come back and forth and did so for business and pleasure. I think that the Latin culture has been a huge influence on my family. My family, unlike some Armenian families, also ended up in a place where they could practice their religion without a lot of restriction. They could, you know, interact with other people that were part of the, the you know, the um, local population. And there wasn't some of the restrictions that people encountered in other places due to religion or due to other uh, differences. And so um, it was really, Mexico kind of became our home. My grandparents would go down to Mexico to visit the family there. My dad remembers going on the bus from Central California when he was a kid. And I think it was kind of a, a safe place and a happy place. And at the time when my dad was growing up, there was no independent Armenia because it was part of the Soviet Union and there was no free travel in and out of the Soviet Union. Later it became independent and I was able to visit um, a few years ago for a friend's wedding. It was really an amazing experience to connect a lot of things, but definitely a, a very rich cultural experience. I think I had in what I observed in my family growing up and I think also because my dad's family settled somewhere so different, it gave this whole other influence. Whereas, you know, some other families, they settled in countries kind of in the same region. So maybe the cultural infusion wasn't so radically different. But um, in my family, it really, it really was. It was also really the kind of marriage between my great uncle and my great aunt who was born in central Mexico where it was truly like two people coming together and both really honoring each other's cultures. My great aunt learned Armenian even though she was from central Mexico and I remember her speaking it and everyone was really blown away because she was pretty, pretty strongly fluent. Um, recently I was going through some old family paperwork and I also felt, found that after my great uncle died, she went to Turkey to try to see kind of where he was from and kind of trace his origins. And she had um, uh, penned a letter in Spanish to 
my other uncle, another Armenian uncle, um, on the Hilton Istanbul letterhead. And we still have that letter and she's giving her impressions of Turkey and how she was sitting in her room and two men called from the front desk and they were Armenian men because there are still some Armenians in Turkey, particularly in, in Istanbul. And um, I guess that they wanted to connect with her because they saw her name was Armenian. And um, there's just a lot of interesting history. My cousins and I, a uh, few of us are very connected and I think we I really hope we can make some kind of a documentary or something about our family because it seems like kind of a unique story, but also a very human story that a lot of people can connect with. That's kind of, you know, tragedy and love and displacement. And that's really what we're seeing in the world, right? So if you can make something positive out of those harsh things that we know exist in the world, then I think a lot of people might gain something from that or connect with it. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking about the level of empathy and understanding that you're able to offer your immigration clients because it doesn't seem like an accident that you ended up practicing immigration law. Right. But I did want to ask you what your experience was like when you went to Armenia. Very interesting. I thought because I don't have an Armenian name that or that somehow people would sense immediately that I was not from there. And I had the opposite experience where everyone spoke to me in Armenian. And in fact, I got a little bit cross-examined when I couldn't speak Armenian. Or I got in the airport once, I got cross-examined about my name because they were trying to match up my luggage with my passport. And really? um, so it was very interesting, but I found the people to be wonderful. I really saw my grandmother and a lot of the people, um, just in the culture, in their spirit, in kind of their kindness and hospitality. And so it was kind of very emotional. I also got to go to Dubai on that trip, which was amazing. You know, Dubai is a, you know, a thing, just an amazing place in so many ways. But um, I, you know, I hope to visit Dubai more, but I think because I was kind of sad about leaving Armenia and I was traveling alone, um, it was the trip to Dubai was even a little bit overshadowed by the time in Armenia, which was really special to me. Did you know that you wanted to be an immigration lawyer? Because I know you've done some other things. I was actually kind of going back and forth between getting a, a PhD in international relations or getting a law degree. But I think at the time, you know, being basically a 21 year old, I really wanted to do something where I might not be in school for another seven years because I was anxious to kind of get my career going. I want to represent people or interests in some way. And I think this is the best way. And another thing that you mentioned the fifth grade and I something flashed back. Another thing that happened in the fifth grade is there was a boy that was new to our school and he was very nice boy. There was nothing about him that was bad, but some other boys were bullying him a lot and I made them stop. What and did you do? I just told them you better stop. And they did, um, particularly one boy who was really bothering him. I think that that was also in me kind of the lawyer and especially not all of the clients clearly that I represented are vulnerable people. You know, uh -huh. some are businesses, some are doctors, some are um, you know, uh, engineers, those types of professions. But a lot of the people I have represented are people that might not have the strongest voice in the legal system or in our society. And I think it was kind of also me seeing that 
that was a role that I was interested in playing is maybe helping someone that was vulnerable for whatever reason. And you're still kind of doing that today. Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) To some degree. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, I always kind of say that we're just a little bit more sophisticated kindergartners, you know, as as adults, you know, we make a lot of the same arguments, you know, it wasn't my idea, it was someone else's idea, or, you know, someone told me to do it. Right. Um, so I, I think sometimes the playground, it, it, we'd learned our first lessons there, but a lot of them did carry over into adulthood. Definitely. So you graduated from undergrad, and then what did you do? I went straight to law school. I went to law school in San Francisco at UC Hastings. I think at the time, it was the 90s, it was San Francisco. And even though we had an emerging kind of international law focus there that's developed more at, the, at UC Hastings, and we had some um, good public interest programs, most of the student population were not interested in the same kind of things that I, I was interested in. So kind of in my development, I think that Hastings was a really good place for me because I got um, a lot of litigation skills um, that I think benefited me. But I think if I had gone to a school that didn't quite emphasize that as much, I wouldn't have seen how much I could develop those skills. And particularly, it was the very scary thing about you get called on in class and you know you're in this huge lecture hall and Socratic method. And I remember in civil procedure, my professor was going down a line and then he jumped to me. Suddenly he jumped across the room to me and I was ready, but I just didn't even know I could really do that. I was very scared, but I was able to do it. And I think that the type of training I got there was very valuable, a good mix of um, my constitutional law professor. She was very inspirational to me. She had been a clerk to two Supreme Court justices. Um, So a good mix of kind of the academic thinking about the law and the philosophical thinking and really like you're on, you have to, (laughs) I'm firing questions at you, which we've all experienced that have tried this in any area of law. And I think it was really a good balance for me too, in terms of a school, but I really longed for more international law, more human rights stuff. So I would go to DC every summer. I got a scholarship the first summer to actually work at a policy institute. I got funding and everything. And then I ended up doing externship at the State Department. Getting While I was out there, I got offered another job that was paid at Department of Commerce. It was related to international trade policy. So I really just, for some reason, things clicked. I was able to click with people in the field, kind of the general field that I was interested in. And then finally, when I was uh, towards the end of my studies at Hastings, after going out to the East Coast for the summers to do these international law jobs and externships, I decided to try to do a dual degree. So I wasn't one of those people that applied on the front end to do a dual degree. I'd applied during my law studies and I was accepted to Columbia, to the School of International and Public Affairs. And so I did three and a half years total of law school and then a year of master's at Columbia. And the studies, it's a very great program because they let you tailor a lot of things and you can take classes as long as there's availability at the journalism school, at the law school. I was fortunate enough to get to participate in a small kind of colloquium with 
uh, Lewis Hankin, who was one of the greats of human rights law. He was on the UN Human Rights Committee. I think he was the head of the UN Human Rights Committee. And I was one of his last students. I think he's passed now, although his work kind of lives on both at Columbia and just broadly in the field. So it was an amazing experience to get to not only go out to the East Coast where you know, the UN is, where all the embassies are, but also to get to study with more greats in human rights and in international law. We had some great professors also at Hastings too that were very accomplished women that were very supportive of my aspirations. And eventually I ended up working for a firm that was right down the street from the stock exchange when I started practicing. It was an immigration firm, but we had an interesting mixture of immigration clients, uh, business immigration and asylum. Some of the best asylum cases I've seen to date in terms of strength and complexity of the case I was able to get involved in early in my career. And many of those people were from West Africa, including some political people that were close with different leaders and then politics being what it is in that region, there was upheaval and they had to flee, you know, for their lives. So it was, you know, a very different experience than what I've had in California, both in terms of getting into my practice area and just the overall environment. So different East Coast and West Coast, I think. When you were about to graduate, what were you thinking you were going to do in terms of work? Did you have a dream job? My career aspiration, partly in going out to the East Coast and going to New York, was to work for one of the UN agencies. And I did get a contract right out of school um, with the United Nations Development Program. And I was selected to go to Haiti. So I went and did that. And I really loved a lot of the things about the UN system. At the same time, I think when you're in any system, when you start to get into it, even a foot into it, you start seeing that it's not kind of just your dream, yeah. what, what that system is. And especially the UN system that's trying to tackle some of the most complex problems in the world that we've never been able to solve and trying to coordinate a number of different countries' interests in doing so. It was a lot different in some ways than I had expected. I was considering doing another contract after that. I was kind of tentatively offered something else. But I, you know, the other issue that I had was at that point, I was pretty sure that I wanted to have children. I was in the process of getting married or marrying my now ex-husband, who was also from another country and was in the process of immigrating to New York. And I kind of knew that to coordinate all of those variables might not be exactly what I wanted, you know, to be kind of in remote locations where you don't always even get to choose where you are and to being, uh, you know, trying to raise children. And I think also when I was in Haiti, I talked to both American and other people that were stationed there. And I realized that, you know, they um, had, some of them had, their kids had contracted malaria very young. And I knew that my mom couldn't <laughs> deal with that. She would have said, get on a plane, get them on a plane and come home. So I, I knew that my parents would freak out if, I mean, they, you know, if I, if one of my children in the future got malaria or I did. So I, I'd really like to do that type of work in the future, but I figured that it may be very hard to coordinate that with being a parent. That age old conundrum of balancing work at home. 
And it's, and I realized that I think my instincts were right because even just practicing within the United States or within a finite area and variables and conditions that are more controlled, I mean, that balancing practice and motherhood isn't perfect every day or most days it's, it's tough, you know, at times. I don't know if you read Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. I haven't. It's a good book. And, you know, she says that at some point you just realize you're not going to get everything done perfectly. And there's just going to be, you know, some things that get done maybe 90%. And if that means there's always dirty dishes in the sink or, you know, something like that, then then that's how it is. That's how you juggle. Definitely. I moved back to California um, after I had been practicing for about just over a year, maybe about a year and a half or so. And I ended up working for a firm in Central California. I decided to start my own practice eventually. And that went really well. You know, at first I was nervous that no one would come, you know, that I would just be sitting there. And then (laughs) I think everyone has that fear. (laughs) And then after a while, some days I thought like, be careful what you wish for, you know, when I'm up late writing a brief or, it's or true. trying to get, get through, you know, so many it's different true. things in a day. So tell me, what does an immigration lawyer do? Because even though I'm an attorney, I don't do immigration. And I have to admit, I don't think that I actually have a real understanding of what an immigration attorney really does. So what we're involved in is basically all types of legal issues that may impact anyone who is a non-citizen. So that could be um, that I get pulled into someone's family law case almost as a witness or to weigh in on some aspect of how their status might be relevant to that proceeding um, or what the permanency of their current status is. But more commonly, it's filing applications or representation in court to try to obtain benefits such as permanent, usually permanent residence, which then leads to citizenship. So the services that I offer are everything within that. I've been an expert witness in civil cases that had a element of immigration law where there was something really important that the case hinged on that was related to immigration status or to an an expert opinion on immigration issues. But more commonly, I'm involved in helping people apply for in court asylum, political asylum, um, or apply for their green card through a family member if they're eligible. Now, a lot of people don't know that the avenues, even if you have a family member that can file for you, the avenues to actually file that are pretty limited at this point because Congress has really not done anything with comprehensive reform in many years. Um, The last major law that would give people a pathway that are here, um, even if they have a spouse that can petition for them who's a U.S. citizen, the last uh, version of that law sunset in April of 2001. A lot of people, you know, surmise that because of the September 11th events, Congress was unwilling to kind of extend broad protections because that made the country more protective and kind of insular right after that. I think there's probably a variety of influences that have prevented Congress from passing comprehensive reform for immigration, but we often have to think about 
creative strategies within limited avenues because of that for many of our clients. What do you think that the overall attitude is in our legal system and elsewhere, if you have any opinions about that, about immigrants, about immigrants coming to the U.S. specifically? I think it's pretty varied in that you, you get so many different perspectives depending on someone's own background based on also their family ties. A lot of times I'll see people shift rapidly in their views, like people I've known for years when it, they actually know someone. So we'll have a discussion, let's say at a party or at a barbecue or something about immigration. They don't, you know, anyone who didn't set foot here with the right documents should just be out. And then I get a call, you know, maybe two years later. So there's this really nice lady who works, mm -hmm. you know, down the street from me. Can you help her? And I feel like saying, that's the person you wanted out. Yes. Yeah. She's just the fa human face to the person that you thought should be expelled. No hearing, no, you know, no due process, no, no nothing, you know, really. So it's, it's hard. Some people can't see this issue, particularly, particularly if they don't have immigrant background or ties it's hard for them to see the human face until they actually encounter a human face in their everyday life. So how long have you been doing immigration? 18 years. So year. that's, that's a long time. That's long enough to be able to comment on whether you've seen some, what have you seen trending and what changes have you seen in our attitudes over time? I, I think that it alternates between kind of, you know, and this might have a lot to do with what's going on in our country economically, what messaging we're getting from whatever administration we have and other sources, media, but it really alternates between kind of a fear and closure at times and kind of an openness, or at least let's try to judge people a little more, not on a case by case basis, because the law is not a case by case basis, but let's exercise some grace and discretion, you know, towards different situations. And I think maybe at times when we're more economically insecure or scared, um, as a country, you start seeing more sentiment that's less favorable towards immigrants and refugees. I think when Americans start feeling a little more secure, they can be a little more open to the possibilities of people coming here and contributing. And honestly, I don't think that's specific to Americans. I think that's very global. If you look at migration and really throughout history, that's something that's maybe part of human nature. It's just that when you feel scared, you close up, you don't want things around you that you don't know, or you don't, you know, you can't really be sure, you know, about. And when you feel a little more secure, you're allowed to broaden your view and be a little more open and and have a little bit of a more varied view towards towards the subject. And I was actually going to ask you that, you know, how we compared to other countries, if you had any thoughts on that. I mean, I have studied some of that and I have researched some of that. I mean, I think that the difference might be that we have traditionally held ourselves out as being more fair, more just, more open, more everyone, you know, than, than really any other country. Um, so I guess I see the xenophobia or those things as being more striking when it comes to Americans. I mean, I'm sure it's because I'm an American too, right? That I think we should be more fair and we should be more uh, inclined towards due process and all of those things. But um, 
I think that throughout the world, you know, migration is one of those things that just triggers certain things at certain times in different countries that ends up being really politically divisive. And it's, you know, it's as much as we say it's just questions about technical requirements or things like that, it really is more countries trying to figure out who they are in their character and how bringing in different people and to what degree is going to shape them or, or change their shape in the future. And those are complicated questions when you think about it, just as individuals, when we think of influences that are different than what we have known, right? Trying to yeah. come into our lives and shape us. That's complicated even on an individual level. So when you take countries, especially a country as diverse as the United States already, I think it gets really complicated. You know, I'm very, you know, much an advocate for immigrants, but I do understand to some degree after having talked to a lot of people where kind of it's coming from, people that are not totally, you know, as much on board with maybe being an advocate for immigrants as I am. I can kind of understand that some of it might be fear, some of it might be just trying to cling to your own way of doing things and your own background. Do you think a lot of it has to do with the, a lot of the different stereotypes that we have about immigrants? I think so. And I think one of the things too is that there, you know, there's definitely a lot of misconceptions. And I think what was really shocking to me is when, you know, this administration, when President Trump was um, campaigning and he had mentioned the thing about Mexicans being murderers and rapists. And I see 10 Mexican families a day often when I was consulting face to face. And in 18 years, you know, at least, you know, most of those years being primarily most of my clients are Mexican nationals. I've seen very few murders and rapists walking around. I've seen a lot of people that are doing a lot of jobs that, that are tough. You know, sometimes the hardest thing is to book someone because they're up at five, you know, in almond trees, um, or they're getting up at 3.30 to get into the fields at five. And then some are going to, you know, doing multiple jobs or another side job that's smaller. I think that's what's heartbreaking to hear something like that at the national level about a group of people that you really know that that's not true. Yeah. You know, just, yeah. just statistically, unless every um, person that's coming to me tends to just be the exemplary person and I don't think so. I don't think that everyone that's not coming to me is a murderer or rapist. Then I just felt that that was very unfair, and it was very unfortunate because I just think we don't need we don't need division just for the sake of division. You know, if there's if there's something true, or but to specifically name a group of people like that too was just really seemed very archaic too. You know, the way of communicating with the American people. And I, I just don't think the statistics really bear that out at all either. And it's just some people, you know, someone at that level, even before he was president, someone like Donald Trump says that there are people that will accept it as truth and he must know empirically that that's true. And it's just not. So what have you seen in the time that Trump's been president? Can't imagine that there wasn't some effect on your practice. I, I um, was not involved in going to the airports directly those days, but I got a lot of panicked calls, particularly from some of my friends that are nationals of the affected, affected countries, including Iran, uh, including some professors and people at that level. So the main thing 
that I think has gone on with this administration, I mean, apart from all my other criticisms and really one of my main criticisms is child separation because I just think it's unconscionable. Um, a lot of what's gone on with child separation and that was very chaotic what incurred in the airports and people at first were being turned away. In some instances, I think that were permanent residents that had green cards that did not have convictions. These weren't, you know, and I think there were older people, there were young, you know, children. And I, I just think at this point in history, no matter who the president is, we should be able to pull together an immigration policy that isn't that chaotic. And I think a lot of things have been announced by this administration that have not been implemented. So also things will be announced and they're kind of half implemented or not fully implemented. And I'm not sure what the strategy is with that. I don't get the feeling that, and I can't be sure about this, so I could be wrong, but I don't get the feeling that many of the people that are in the room when immigration is on the table in the administration know or care deeply the, the status of the current law. And one example was when the Supreme Court ruled that de deferred action for childhood arrivals, I was very involved in that, that cause, um, that the applications or the work permits um, would go forward, including new filings. And the administration quickly issued a press release that basically said that the Supreme Court's decision is without legal basis. And don't know how you override the decision of the United States Supreme Court, but they're still, as far as I know, as of today, not honoring new applications for DACA, despite the Supreme Court's decision around the end of June. DACA itself has just gone through so many different variants of litigation. It's really hard to explain, even to another attorney, everything that's happened. But you can imagine trying to explain to someone whose child should be eligible because they're the right age, they're not a criminal, they meet all the other criteria, but we're trying to explain all the things that have happened because yeah. how do you explain that the president and their, his administration is not order, order, honoring the Supreme Court decision? <laughs> I don't know how to explain that in any language. <laughs> That's a hard one. Yeah. That's a hard one. That's what people really want, right? Especially when they go to a lawyer, they want some kind of certainty. You know, they want you to know what the answer is going to be or what the result is going to be. With immigration law, at least the way that it exists now, do you feel like you can do that for people? Is it possible to give them certainty? No, most of the consultations and conversations I've had recently were if we can defer this, if we can kick this down the road till after November, let's have that conversation the second week of November again here's what I see happening. If this administration stays in for another four years, this is what could happen or this is what's going to happen. If uh, the Biden-Harris administration is our next administration, this is how I see that playing out. And my assumption is, is that Biden-Harris would follow many of the same things as the Obama administration. The Obama administration was not without criticism for you know, a high number of deportations and there was a lot of ICE activity However, you know, after having worked with ICE and talking to them about cases and seeing how they were operating under the different administrations, one of the benefits under the Obama administration is that an officer or supervisor could exercise prosecutorial discretion. There was a memo on, there were two memos at least on prosecutorial discretion that the Obama administration had issued. 
So that meant that you don't necessarily have to go full throttle ahead with deportation of a student with no criminal record. Um, there were levels of deportation priorities. And that just makes sense. I mean, we can't, for whatever reason, you know, our economy, no matter what anyone says, has thrived a lot off of undocumented labor. Um, it's not that hard to figure out that if we really wanted to stop the problem, we'd stop it at the employer level, right? They're fully, you know, probably justified in that. But I still think that with this many people here at this point without firm status, we can't, even if enforcement is a priority for certain segments or certain people or for the government, you can't deport 12 million people. So why are you having a student come and check in and say you're possibly going to move forward with deportation or an ill grandmother or something versus, you know, really focusing on people that might have already had their chance or do have maybe a more, you know, significant criminal history. So what do you, what would you say to the people out there, because this is something that I hear all the time, is that immigrants come to this country, you know, they take all of our jobs, they don't pay taxes. And again, these aren't my opinions. These are just things that I hear. Um, what would you say to that? What would your response to that be? Well, whenever I hear the don't pay taxes thing, I really don't understand because everyone in 18 years that I have participated in their immigration process, most, not all, were already paying taxes through an individual, even if they didn't have yet have their own social, they had registered for an individual taxpayer ID and were paying taxes or filing their tax returns and, you know, disclosing their entire income. You know, there's always a percentage that either don't really know that they should do that or think it's going to spark enforcement. And in many cases, I've had people go back the full time and, and file all the years. And many had to enter into payment plans, not all, you know, because obviously there's different, you know, depending on your level of income, there's different obligations. Really, there's no path forward without having paid federal taxes. So that is false. That's definitely false. There's, there may be some people here that are not interested in pursuing their immigration process at this point, but again, even just in the consultation process, I'll ask, have you paid all your taxes? Have you filed every year? Usually it's yes and we're done. There's nothing else to discuss. So I think that's definitely a fallacy that has been put out there by people that want to severely restrict immigration. I mean, I think at this point, this country, you know, attracts so many different types of people and I don't know about the taking the jobs because I mean, immigrants do every, immigrants and refugees literally do every type of job. I've represented people that are, you know, farm workers and, you know, work in factories and all the way to people that have to have seven, eight years of education plus additional training that are neurosurgeons, physicians, engineers. So I don't really know whose job they're taking, but they're taking a job that they may be well suited for in most cases. And I don't know if that's a job that an American would always take depending on what it is. I also know we've had shortages of nurses and certain other skilled professions that are well documented that immigrants have been able to plug into and help close the gaps. What do you think right now are the biggest concerns for immigration attorneys, at least from what you see, that need some kind of reform? 
I think it's just hard for us to kind of all weather the different types of changes because as much as you could say any area of law is political, right? But I think immigration is highly political. Things take a 180, you know, in terms of interpretations of even cases that have, or areas of law like asylum law, which have been developing since after World War II, right? So while you might say it's law, it's not politics, I think we have to weather more the shifts between different political tides blowing different ways than many areas of law. And I think that's very draining because you're trying to be this level head, you know, consistently advise people and then, you know, things will blow another way. And it seems like the same body of law is now being interpreted in such a drastically different way. But you really do feel that, wow, if I don't, you know, if I can't somehow pull through a solution, this family is going to be separated. You know, these kids yeah. that you're staring at are going to grow up and maybe have an entirely different life. And I think that's the reason that I, at least given my family history and my interest, why I was kind of well suited for this, because that like seeing those kids, seeing the family, I mean, that's kind of what motivate, has motivated me at some points to stay up all night. I think that, you know, thought that you can really alter people's lives and particularly children's lives that are part of that family. I've had a lot of the kids where I, you know, was able to win their father or mother's green card, and now they're in college or thinking about grad school, thinking about becoming attorneys themselves. They also, um, many of those clients that have had really tough things happen and tough lives, they, you know, many um, really are very grateful, but I feel like they also just still have a good spirit. And so sometimes I think we all get so bogged down with just okay, I've got all this stuff to do. I'm tired. You know, I have all these different demands and it really makes me see that like, you know, if, if they could go through all that and, you know, and still be such a happy, kind person, then that is uh, enlightening for all of us, I think in a way. There are people I think that are just naturally positive and they'll always see the glasses half full. And, and then there's other people that, you know, it could be a beautiful sunny day and they're afraid it's going to rain. Definitely. So um, we all know people that fall into either category. Is immigration the kind of thing that you get one chance to do it, to do it right? And if you don't do it right, it can have devastating results. It is. And it's, it's deceivingly misleading because people think, well, it's just a form. Every single question on the form relates to a regulation and a yes or no could have very far reaching consequences, including people having filled out, let's say an application for renewal of a green card or more likely a citizenship application, something either not being, it's also what you don't disclose, something not being disclosed or disclosed in a different way or something comes out and they could end up in removal proceedings. So it's not just a form. There's regulations and statutes that underpin all of the questions on all the applications and can trigger for any non-citizen removal proceedings um, or sometimes detention, you know? I mean, that's not really common these days where someone fills out a form, but it really depends on their history. Certain people with prior removals, particularly if they were removed at a border when they were trying to enter the country, just, you know, undocumented, sometimes don't fully, it wasn't fully explained what the impact of that was. 
So I've heard of people that had walked into interviews thinking that they were going to sit down and apply for a green card and were arrested at the interview and removed by ICE. And these are often people, when I say that, a lot of people think, okay, murder or rapist, you know, yeah. kidnapper. No, this is something a little more ambiguous where they had an incident at a border that didn't really seem like that big a deal sometimes. And maybe it wasn't even fully explained to them the full legal impact of that. So it really isn't an area. What's more common in our practice area than people wanting to do it themselves is non-lawyers getting into the mix. And it's even worse than probably someone doing it themselves. And many of the non-lawyers, not all, but many are overstating their own credentials, sometimes misrepresenting their own education. Some of them hold the status in Latin America, particularly where they're classified as a notary. So they'll say notary, and that means something very particular in Latin America and Mexico, which is something pretty uh, advanced. Not in the United States. Yeah. Just, you know, I mean, it's not anything bad, but it's not something that's super complex. So there's a lot of confusion when people do that. And some of the most complex cases I've ever had were people that went to non-lawyers first and there was just a big mess. Often when people came to me with those horrifyingly complex cases and many of them I've been able to solve, the fees are super high, you know, compared to other cases. And they're also frustrated because they paid this other person. And sometimes they paid the non-lawyer more than me. Sometimes people think it's, it's cheaper, you know, to hire... But some of these people are charging exorbitant fees without a lot of, you know, follow through or backup as to what they're doing. And so then you're going to pay someone else and necessarily their fees are going to be higher because they're trying to do a cleanup job on part of, yeah. on top of saving your case. So you just described that you're basically running several firm locations single-handedly. <laughs> How are you doing that? And what is in store for you? What, what is your vision for the firm? Well, I have a really amazing staff and I would like to mention them. I have Maria, Marisol, and Greg, and they're all really super go-getter, helpful, you know, um, no, uh, no drama between people. Everyone's on board. So I couldn't do it without them. And I think really right now, I have some of the best people I've ever had, you know. Makes a big difference. Definitely. And you feel it, you know, I think as an owner, you know the difference. So I think that's really important. I think too few entrepreneurs um, give full credit to good staff because you can't do literally everything alone. No, um, you can't. And I, um, I want to keep going with practice. I want to get more involved with different types of things related to um, big cases and possibly with organizations that are litig litigating big cases on behalf of refugees and, and immigrants. Um, I'd also like to keep expanding things like this in terms of giving people access to information in a variety of languages, you know, putting information out there and just, you know, keep also trying to get involved in things that relate to policy. So where I might be able to influence one case or even several hundred cases over the course of several years, I think we are at a point in our history where we really need to start coming together with more coherent policy that we go forward with as a country. And I'd like to particularly, you know, if there's a new administration that comes in, it may be a good opportunity for me to contribute to that in the near future. And I'd like to do some of that as well. Would you ever run for public office? I've been asked this so many times and I'm so, 
I'm so not a politician. I don't know. I just, I don't think I could do it for very It might be the universe telling you something. My torts professor in law school, I had presented something in our course and I went to his office hours to talk to him about something else soon after that. And he said, I should definitely run for public office. He thought based on my, the way I presented information. And I think because he also mentioned, because I was a Spanish speaking Armenian, I could take the whole state of California, <laughs> which I don't know if that's true, but he felt that it would be a strong plus on top of what he saw. So I, I mean, I'm never going to rule anything out totally, but it's not really my first um, choice. I really enjoy being involved with political things and with policy, but um, I see what some of my friends go through in Fresno that are involved in local politics and other people. I just don't know if I'd want that microscope constantly. It seems a little scary to me to open yourself up to that constant microscope. Yeah, especially if you're a private person. Definitely. And or I think an introvert. That side too, even though I enjoy interaction with people and being out there and doing things. I like, you know, my private time with my kids and do you feel like you were those aspirations that you had for international law and human rights and issues of that nature? Do you feel like that desire is being satisfied right now? To some degree, yes and no. I think that there's a strong element of politics in a lot of the asylum cases I handle. Just within the last month, I've worked on cases that were and filed cases that were, let's see, India, Algeria, Georgia, Republic of Georgia, Armenia, so Mexico, you know, Central America. So I get, you get, in some of these cases, especially you get deep into politics. Um, also Lebanon, which obviously is, is a, a very troubled place after that blast and, you know, and due to other things. So I'm working on some cases that are really where because of the nature of the case, it's not like a family petition where it might not be that different no matter where someone was from, but because we're arguing something about political opinion or about a certain religious group's treatment or ethnic group, we have to get deep into the politics, sometimes even get an expert witness involved, pull human rights reports. I have to write briefs based on that. So to some degree, as much as you can representing a client um, within the United States, I think it does. But I'm always looking to broaden my experiences and looking to how I can make an impact, you know, as an immigration lawyer, but just getting involved in other things that are related to is one of my interests. You must learn a lot about other cultures doing what you do. Definitely. You probably have a lot of exposure to the way that people from other countries live and their traditions just by talking to them. Definitely. And um, it's, it's very, you know, interesting, eye-opening. And, you know, sometimes people say things to me just in passing or just other places. And like, really, you learn, I think, that almost everything is culturally relative. But a lot of people's perspectives on different things are very culturally relative, are very influenced through the lens of what their, their culture and religious background is. And, you know, that, that can just be so different. I mean, even different populations. I've represented indigenous people from within Mexico that I couldn't communicate with in Spanish because they spoke Indian. Actually, a good percentage of my clients in Fresno have been people that spoke indigenous languages. And I can tell when I speak to them in Spanish because there'll be a certain 
accent, even within Spanish. And even though they're from, they have a Mexican passport, they're from Mexico. You know, even within those populations versus the main population in Mexico, you see a lot of cultural difference, difference in communication style, differences in a lot of different areas of their lives. And so if you can have that kind of diversity, I mean, we know we have diversity in the United States, but somehow we imagine other countries as being kind of, you know, we think of, okay, Mexican, French, like there are these boxes, yeah. right? And it's a lot more complicated than that when you see as many different people as I do and, and different people from within the same country. Do you feel like it's important to stay current on world events? Because, you know, some people don't. I, I know I could be better. I'm, I'm really interested in, in world events. I think that's one of the reasons, too, that I knew kind of going towards something that was more international um, related. When I was a little kid, we had really small TV because my parents were very anti-TV. And um, when there was coverage of even like very stressful events in the world, I was really captivated by that. And so I've always, like since I was a kid, I wanted to know like what's happening there. You know, it could have been any country in the world. But I just was always really interested in reading, you know, about history of different countries and political events. So I try to follow really closely and I especially follow very closely if it's countries that I have, you know, asylum claims pending uh, for those countries. Like India has gone through a lot of political upheaval and identity, you know, um, politics in the last two years. And a lot of my clients are minority uh, religion Sikhs from within India. And some have engaged in interfaith marriages with people that are Hindu or other religions. And it's, you know, those following those political developments help me better present or develop those cases. So what do you have left on your bucket list, Jessica? Sounds like you've squeezed a lot into your, your short years. You still have a long way to go. <laughs> oh, um, I'd like to, I think I'd like to, you know, keep practicing, keep, um, you know, expanding my practice and assisting different clients, including with complex cases like appeals. I have a high success rate in immigration court. So I have few appeals that were my cases, but not many. But I've been successful in assisting some clients who had other attorneys in reopening their case, even when they're at the Ninth Circuit or a high or circuit court level. So I'd like to continue to be involved in that because I think I do have a certain strategy and skill in managing kind of what the more complex immigration litigation is in terms of not like the class action stuff, but an individual complex case that's gone to a high level. So that's one thing I'd like to teach more. I'd like to get involved in policy. And, you know, just, I think what's interesting is some of the same experiences I've had while traveling, where you kind of get this broad in mind, I've had some of those same experiences in my work, just in meeting different people and representing them. So I think just, you know, continuing to grow both as a lawyer and as a business owner and as a person through my work. I hope I can, um, you know, contribute in a meaningful way to something that um, immigration policy related next. I really think that we're at a point in this country where we need to figure some things out. Um, I know you could say that about a lot of different policy issues or areas, but it's, you know, kind of a huge thing that's gone unsolved for a long time. And it's, you know, it's complicated to have 12, 13 million people here where it's not clear what's going to happen. <laughs> people grow up here, they get married, they you know, and so um, I'd really like to contribute to something that's 
meaningful. And I think that also after having seen a lot, I mean, I think people assume that because of the side that I'd been on, I'd just be like, give everyone a green card. No, yeah. I mean, there's, there's criteria to all areas of law. Obviously I have a lot of sympathy towards most of my clients. Most of my clients are very hardworking people, very honest people. But, you know, there's always going to be some rules and some criteria, but we have to figure out what those are that make sense. Well, I'm interested to see where your path takes you and what else you have in store. Thank you, Christina. Thank you for doing this and for inviting me. And I really enjoyed the conversation. It's my pleasure. Thank you for saying yes. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.